Well, it is great to be back with you, at least virtually. Uh, I so enjoyed being with you last week. And last week, we talked about the fact that America is in crisis. Based on a recent survey, 98% of Americans believe that incivility is a significant problem in our country, and 67% believed it's already reached crisis levels. So I advocated, being the co-director of the Winsome Conviction Project, where should we start? And the place that I suggested was a quote from the founder of Modern Karate that said, spirit precedes technique. I argued that if we're really going to turn around incivility and have hard conversations, then we better have Christ spirit before we ever get to technique. So that's why we took a look at what Paul said, let's be rooted and grounded in Christ's love. That is a great place for us to start as Christian communicators. But now we're going to get to technique. Technique is very important. The book of Proverbs is rooted in communication techniques, strategies, way to organize a conversation. So this week, only after establishing spirit, Jesus' spirit, now we get to technique. So I'm going to look at the book of Proverbs. When I did my master's thesis, I incorporated communication theory with the wisdom of the book of Proverbs in order to create a four-step model of how do you organize a difficult conversation. Now, the good news is I think this model works for your ordinary conversations, but it's designed for the really hard conversations. And we need to know how to navigate these hard conversations. We exist in what Deborah Tannen, a Georgetown linguist, identifies as the argument culture, that we approach our disagreements in an adversarial frame of mind as if it was a verbal slugfest. Now, I could give you an academic definition of what I think Tan is trying to get at, but rather, let me uh, show you an interesting commercial that was created by three communication theorists. They imagined, in today's argument culture, what if Honest Abe Lincoln ran for president? What would attack ads look like against Honest Abe? So let's take a look at this. Has President Lincoln given up? At a speech in Pennsylvania, he even refused to dedicate a battlefield still fresh with the blood of tens of thousands of Union soldiers. We cannot dedicate. We cannot consecrate. We cannot hallow this ground. Lincoln believes that America will perish from the earth. Perish from the earth. And that our soldiers have died in vain. Died in vain. Honestly, Abe, died in vain. In vain, in vain, in vain, in vain. Abraham Lincoln, wrong on the war, wrong for the Union. I am George B. McClellan, and I approve this message. Crazy, isn't it? I, I wish I was there so that I can actually ask you what you noticed. Uh, what I noticed is uh, words being taken out of context, the worst possible interpretation, uh, presenting him in the worst possible light. I think that's the heart of what Tan is trying to get at in today's argument culture, is we don't take time to understand the complexity of each other's beliefs or convictions, and we actually create straw men everywhere. Like this is uh, what people who believe in critical race theory or believe in postmodernism, we often present the worst version of what they believe rather than the best version. Now, why do we need the ancient wisdom of the book of Proverbs today? Because we are embroiled in disagreements. I mean, just take a look at this graphic. 
we can talk about critical race theory. Critical race theory has become incredibly divisive. We could take a look at whether we should uh, wear masks or not, or even whether we should get vaccinated or not. At my university, this has become very divisive among faculty, right? Uh, do they have to get vaccinated before they come to campus? Because a lot of faculty have biblical reasons why they feel like they shouldn't have to get vaccinated and why that might be a really bad idea. Uh, take a look at, um, you'll see John MacArthur, who early in the pandemic opened up his doors with no mask whatsoever and even defied the governor of California to do so. There are many people who believe that the election, this past one, was not a fair election and that President Trump lost because of dubious reasons. And then last, Black Lives Matter has become really contentious. Uh, race has become contentious. So if we are to be ambassadors for Jesus, as Paul says to the church at Corinth, then how do we, one, talk to each other? How do Christians talk to each other, protecting unity? And then second, how do we go into the public square, be that electronic or face-to-face, -face, and talk to people outside the Christian community in a way that balances what Paul says? I want you to speak the truth, but I want you to do it in a way that is also loving. We need to take a look at that. Remember, Peter echoed what Paul said. He said, be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in you, but do it with all reverence and respect. We have to find that balancing point. Now, where do we turn to do that? I'm going to suggest that we adopt a Christian approach to communication. And that's an interesting question for us to ask. What separates Christian communicators from anybody else? What are the hallmarks? I suggested a lot of that last week, that we bless when we're insulted. Uh, we love, we turn the other cheek, we go the extra mile, we feed our enemies when they're hungry. That ought to separate us. Um, I love Proverbs 16:7, where the ancient writer says, when a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies live at peace with him. Proverbs 16:7. I like the realism of that verse. We're still going to have people who disagree with us. We're still going to have enemies. But the ancient writer believed it was possible to approach these differences in a way that we could still live at peace with each other. Now, I teach communication. I actually have a PhD in marital communication. I like to remind my wife of that, by the way. In the middle of an argument, I love to say, uh, where did you get your PhD? In I'm not saying it works. I'm just saying periodically I say that. So uh, studying communication, we know that communication exists on two levels. One, there is the content level. That's our arguments. That's our convictions. That's why I'm pro-vaccination, anti-vaccination. That's why I was this political party rather than that political party. We call that the content level. But we also know that there's the relational level. The relational level is made up of three different qualities. The amount of compassion between two individuals, the amount of respect, and the amount of acknowledgement. Like, do I acknowledge the weight of your argument? I don't have to agree with it. I don't have to condone it. But do I at least uh, acknowledge the weight of your arguments? Now, this is what we know from communication theory. If we mess up the relational level, people will never hear our content. I think that's what the ancient writer of Proverbs says when he says, a word spoken in the right circumstances is compared to fine jewelry. The relational sets the table for our content. Mess up the relational, nobody's going to care about our content. 
So what do we do when we actually have this conversation? Let's take a look at a proverbial model. It's made up of four different questions that are asked in sequence. These are not um, incredibly original questions, but I think they organize a conversation in a way that protects the relational so that people can hear our content. Question number one, what does this person believe? I think it's fascinating that the ancient writer says this, he who gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame to that person. Now, I think we get the folly part, right? Uh, we often speak without fully understanding what the other person believes. Now, think about my poor wife for a second. In college, I was on the debate team and I did stand-up comedy in local clubs. I'd like to be married to somebody like that, right? So my wife will start to say things. I will just flat out interrupt her and start my rebuttal. And my wife, Noreen, is like, hey, wait a minute, that's not even what I'm talking about. And my response is, but if it was, if it was what you were talking about, that, right, that doesn't go well, that's folly. But interesting that the ancient writer attaches shame to it. It is shameful for me to speak before listening. Now, why do you think that is? I think because the number one way we love someone, this is based on the work of M. Scott Peck, the number one way that we love a person is to listen to that person. But the inverse is equally true. I demean you by not listening to you. I don't think your perspective is worth me listening to, or it's so simplistic, I can uh, dismantle it in two, three sentences. We confer shame upon ourselves when we so belittle another person. Now, when we uh, get to communication, it gets hard because when you're in the middle of a conversation, somebody will say something and it will just trip a wire, right? Uh, your button will get pushed, right? Think of the ancient proverb that says a wise man overlooks an insult. That's just flat out hard to do. That's why last week I talked about spirit preceding technique. So what we have to do is we have to be mindful. Uh, we have to clear the mechanism as we're listening to another person. That phrase, clear the mechanism, comes from one of my favorite sports movies of all time, For the Love of the Game. It's a, actually a novel by Mike Shera. So in this clip you're about to watch, Kevin Costner is playing a soon-to-be Hall of Fame pitcher. He's playing for the Detroit Tigers. I'm from Detroit, one reason I love it. He's playing against the New York Yankees, another reason I love this movie. We hate the Yankees. I hate the Yankees with a biblical hatred, right? So he's pitching his last game, but he's told nobody it's his last game. No one knows that after this game in Yankee Stadium, he's retiring, and he happens to be pitching his very first no-hitter. Now, you can imagine the craziness of Yankee Stadium and the Detroit Tigers are in town. So watch this clip as he enacts this really interesting technique called clear the mechanism.
Hello, Mike. Now, what does he need to clear the mechanism of? Uh, in communication, we talk about communication noise. Communication noise is anything that would interfere with the message being delivered. So we've identified basically four different kinds of noise. One is what we call environmental noise. Uh, before I started getting filmed, we had to turn off the air conditioner because it was just making too much noise, right? That's environmental noise. But environmental noise isn't just a noisy air conditioner. It also can be technologically driven, right? Um, uh, my poor wife, uh, I have three boys. Uh, she would add that I'm really the fourth boy. We love sports. So in our house, ESPN is playing 24-7. You really don't get ESPN until you've watched it the third time to get the full nuances of the updates. So my sweet wife could be saying something to me, and I'm looking right at her, and I hear that theme music to ESPN come on. Oh, it is hypnotic. So I'm looking at my wife, and I'm like, oh, don't, don't. And I just, and it doesn't even matter what it is. It could be Yiddish shuffleboarding. And I'm like, hang on, Noreen, I want to see if Jan gets the red one, right? It, that's uh, technological noise, and we need to clear the mechanism of technological noise. Uh, second on the list is what we call physiological noise. That's if you're hungry, uh, if you're extremely tired. That's just not a great time to have these really hard conversations. Um, I love what Jesus did. Remember in the Gospels, Jesus, knowing the crowd was hungry, preached a sermon. No, that's not what he did. Knowing the crowd was hungry, he fed them. Right? This is Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You cannot get to self-actualization, Maslow argued, until you take care of safety needs, physical needs. So let's make sure that we are fully spiritually ready to have these conversations, emotionally, Physically, it's not at the end of the day when you're just wiped out. We have to really pick the time that we're physically ready to have this conversation. Third on the list, semantic noise. Now, this gets really interesting. The very words that I use trip up the conversation. You read into my words and it throws off your ability to focus on the conversation. This is a really good um warning for us when we're having difficult conversations. Pick your words wisely. We should know how a person is going to interpret a word that we use, right? Uh, let, me give, let me give you an example. Uh, a funny one and then a serious one. Funny one. My wife and I, I hope it's funny. I hope you find this funny. Um, we are speaking at a marriage conference for family life marriage conferences, a, a very conservative group. I'm up there speaking and I say this in front of the audience. The way the world does marriage is asinine, right? Now, afterwards, when the conference is over, we get evaluated by 80 couples. There could be 1,000 in the ballroom, but 80 couples are randomly picked, and they, um, they do a survey on how the speaker was, the conference, blah, blah. After I said that, the way the world does marriage is asinine, uh, a bunch of people said, love the conference, was kind of surprised, the speaker used blue language. And I'm like, and, and mentioned the word asinine. I'm like, that's ridiculous. That is Asinine is not a swear word. It's in the dictionary. It is not a swear word. My wife said to me, kind of surprised you used that word. Noreen, it's not a swear word. So me being teachable, right? I kept using it. 
I do another conference. I say the exact same phrase. This time, a person says, really surprised the speaker swore from up front. I am like, that is ludicrous, right? But as a speaker, I have a decision to make. Am I going to dig my heels in and continue to use a word that is tripping up parts of the audience, right? Uh, so I have chosen to get rid of that word, right? Because I don't want to mess people up uh, by using a certain word that's being interpreted by, by them. Let me give you a serious one. A woman, a white woman was teaching in a predominantly African-American inner city school and she gave out vocabulary words. One of those words was the word niggerly. Now, do you know what niggerly means? It means in the dictionary, stingy, right? A, a way to use it would be, hey, next time don't be so niggerly, you buy lunch, okay? Well, she actually gave it out with the purest of intentions, but you can imagine how parents receive that word, right? I suppose if that word meant courageous, we'd be fine, but it didn't, it had a negative connotation. She actually lost her job. Now, when I mentioned that at a pastor's conference, some pastors came up to me and said, that's ridiculous. I would not stop using that word. She should not have uh, been fired. That is not, the word is not a swear word. It's not derogatory, it's this. And I just said, yeah, but are you, other-centered when we speak. So we need to know what trips up a fellow parishioner when you're talking about certain issues, what trips up your spouse, children. Know these tripwire words and we need to eliminate them. Last would be psychological noise. These are the biases that you have heading into a conversation. Like some of us are so angry about uh, Black Lives Matter movement that the minute it's mentioned, you lose all objectivity and you go to DEFCON 1. So we need to know heading into a conversation, these are my tripwires. Again, that's why we started this two-part series with spirit precedes technique because the technique will go out the window if we're not rooted in the love of Jesus and I'm literally praying during the conversation asking the Holy Spirit to give me power not to be defensive. So that's communication noise. So the very first question is simply, tell me what you believe. And we want to be charitable. We don't want to interrupt that person at that time. We want to give them the freedom to explain. Now we can ask questions during that time, but remember the tone of your questions is everything. If the tone is off, then the questions will be seen as pseudo questions or defensive questions. All right, question number two. Why does this person believe? Look at Proverbs 16, 25. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its way is the end of death. Now, I think today in the argument culture, we flip it, right? We start with your view is gonna lead to death, but that's not how the ancient writer wrote it. There's a way that seems right to a person. So I wanna understand your background. I wanna understand your history. How did you arrive at these beliefs, these conclusions? I wanna get the entire backstory. That backstory is really important in understanding the context of why a person acts the way he or she does or why they believe what he or she believes. Um, this is Steve Jobs, he's been compared to a modern Ben Franklin, right? One of our top innovators. But if you know anything about Steve Jobs, he was very difficult to work with. Some even labeled him a narcissist, right? Well, Jeff Goodall from Rolling Stone magazine did, uh, surveyed uh, Steve Jobs' friends to get some background information on why Steve Jobs was brilliant, but really hard to work with. Take a look at this quote. 
The central trauma of his life, Steve Jobs, after all, was being given up for adoption by his parents. And now he's being kicked out of his second family, Apple, the company he founded. A close friend once speculated to me that Steve's drive came from a deep desire to prove that his parents were wrong to give him up. A desire, in short, to be loved. Or, more precisely, a desire to prove that he was somebody worth loving. Now, let's just for a second assume that is true about Steve Jobs, right? How does that change your interaction with him? I would hope it would evoke some sympathy. Now, he's still hard to work with. He may even still be a narcissist. But now you've put it in context. You understand what might be fueling this. And this just might be a, 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 an adult who still wants to prove to his birth parents you never should have given me up for adoption. Getting the backstory uh, is incredibly important. And hopefully it produces in us a type of sympathy. Here's the biggest problem we make according to the Harvard Negotiation Project, the top mediating uh, group of scholars in the entire world. They say this, the biggest problem we have is that we only trade conclusions with each other. We don't share how we arrived at conclusions. Let me say that again. We only share conclusions with each other. We don't share how we arrived at the conclusion. Carol Gilligan, a feminist theorist, says this, you cannot take a life out of history. You have to take that life, you have to take that perspective and put it in that person's history. Incredibly important to do. The ancient writers say this, the purposes of a man's heart are deep waters, but a man of understanding draws them out. I might not even fully know why I believe certain things with such conviction. Your job in the conversation is to get my backstory, find out who has influenced my thinking, what movies, authors, uh, books, life experiences, incredibly important to get that kind of information. All right, question number three, where do we agree with each other? Now, let me be honest. We are not good as Christians when it comes to question number three. We have been trained almost not to do number three. We've been trained when looking at another perspective, another worldview, uh, to first identify what's wrong with that perspective right? And then we attack it or, or we uh, defend the Christian faith against it. That won't establish the relational element of communication. I teach my students, start with where you agree with a person and move towards disagreement. That's a lost skill in today's argument culture. So we can ask questions like, what common questions do we have? What common desires do we have? Listen, <clears throat> you may be uh, one political party or the other, but what are the common desires, the common questions the two camps have, even if they might have radically different answers to those problems and what are the common struggles? Okay, let me get a little uh, controversial. <clears throat> I have my students read two books in one of my classes. One is the Holy Quran. Now, when I do that, uh, and my students finish reading it, it, they are part of 1% of American Christians who have ever read the book of another faith tradition. Think about that. Um, that's why we get called anti-intellectual by non-Christians. We've not read the Quran, the Bhagavad Gita, the Vedas, Nietzsche, Sartre, right? We know our perspective, but we seldom go outside the Christian perspective and read the perspectives of other people. So I have my students read the Quran, right? Now, I get phone calls from parents 
One mom said to me, I did not send my daughter to Biola, the Biblical Institute of Los Angeles, to read the Quran. I asked her, why did you send her here? And she said, well, I want her to be a Jesus follower. I said, we do too. But to be a Jesus follower, uh, you have to believe in the Great Commission. One out of five people in the world self-identify as a Muslim today. It'd be good to know their backstory. It'd be good to know about the book that informs their life more than any other book, and that's the Quran. Another dad called me and said, how will you feel at night if one of your students reads the Quran and then walks away from the faith? Now listen, I take that very seriously, but if all it took was one book for a person to walk away from the faith, better, better that happen at Biola, where we can help them process and put the pieces back together. Uh, other book I have them read uh, by Michael Hart, it's called The 100, a ranking of the most influential people in human history. You just gotta tip your cap to Michael Hart. Talk about writing a book that is sure to offend everybody, right? He, he identifies the top 100 and then he ranks them 100 to one. So this is what I do with my students. I take the top 10, but I scramble it. I don't put it in Michael Hart's order. In the top 10, you get Sulin, the creator of paper. You get Columbus. You get um, Sir Isaac Newton. By the way, many religious leaders. You get Buddha, Confucius, Paul, Muhammad, and Jesus, right? In the top 10. I have my students rank them 10 to 1. Now, they're Christian students. This is going to be a shocker. Guess who gets number one? It's Jesus, hands down, okay? Then I kind of do it like David Letterman. We start at 10, we work all the way up, up to the top three, right? Now, by the way, Paul comes in at five, which is interesting, the Apostle Paul. So we're to number three. There are three people left, Jesus, Muhammad, and Sir Isaac Newton, okay? Now my students, I ask them, so what do you think about that top three? And they're like, well, I'll tell you right now, Jesus better not get third. Right? God doesn't get bronze. And Muhammad better not beat out Jesus. Right? I said, okay, fair enough. So, drum roll. Number three, Jesus. Number three. My students are great. They're all like, that's ridiculous. That's crazy. Right? Muhammad better not get one. Number two on the list, Sir Isaac Newton. Number one on the list, the most influential person in human history, Muhammad. Now, I just let my students go, and they are talking, chattering, blah, blah, blah. And I say, okay, what are we missing? And finally, a woman raised her hand and said, you know, I don't, I don't think I know his criteria. I said, boy, isn't that interesting? We're disagreeing with him, but we don't know his criteria. So if you read the front of his book, this is what Michael Hart says. Michael Hart says, listen, I think the two greatest influences in human history has been science and religion. Thus, You'll see my top 10, my top 100, are filled with people representing both. Because I believe both are equal, I'm, uh, my one and two on my list are not going to be two scientists, nor will be two religious people. I'm telling you right now, even before you read the book, one and two are going to be split between a scientist representing scientists, science and a person representing religion. Okay? So he picks Sir Isaac Newton to represent science, which if you know Newton's life, that's a pretty good pick. And then you get number one is Muhammad. Now here's what I say to my Biola students. What if you had lunch with Michael Hart? Wouldn't that be interesting? Now he knows who he's having lunch with, a Biola student, right? So he probably already thinks, well, this is gonna be an argument. Like from the word go, they're gonna disagree with my list 
because I put Jesus third. But you know why he put uh, Muhammad first? Because Muhammad was more diverse. And, and he's kind of got a point, right? Jesus, by his own admission, said, I'm not here for political gain. I'm not a military leader. I'm leading a different revolution, a religious revolution. Muhammad, we know, was a military leader, jihad. We know that he was a political leader and he was a religious leader. And Michael Hart says, Paul comes in fifth and kind of siphons off votes from Jesus, right? So I mentioned that to them. And one guy raised his hand and said, yeah, I gotta be honest with you, that sort of kind of makes sense to me. And I'm like, you know, it does me too. So if you're having lunch with Michael Hart, what is the one thing you gotta say to Michael Hart or this conversation goes nowhere? The one thing you have to have done is read his book. If you didn't read his book, imagine how that conversation goes. You know, uh, Mr. Hart, I didn't read your book, but I really disagree with it, right? Or I read a critique of your book. It'd be like, dude, read the book before we're gonna have this conversation, right? That's question number one and two, right? Then I would start off with where I agree with Michael Hart. What a great book, thoroughly enjoyed it. And based on your criteria, I agree with Muhammad being number one, right? That's starting with agreement, moving towards disagreement. Now, what's the disagreement's gonna be? There's one thing I believe about Jesus you don't that I think would move him up to the top spot. Michael Hart would say, well, what's that? I believe he was God. And I just assume that if you believed Jesus was God, he'd get the top spot. And Michael Hart might laugh and say, well, yeah, but that's the disagreement we have. Great, let's talk about that. But we started with agreement, moved towards disagreement. Okay, now why are the three the three? Why did we start with the three, right? What do you believe? Why do you believe it in common ground? Because there's something called the rule of reciprocation, right? I generally will treat you the way that you treat me. If you don't listen to me, I won't listen to you. If you don't seek to find any common ground with me, I probably won't seek to find common ground with you. But the inverse is equally true. If I listen to you, you feel indebted to listen to me. Uh, if you seek to find common ground with me, I feel indebted to find common ground with you. We do the first three because we want this rule of reciprocation to absolutely uh, kick in. All right, last question. Based on all I've learned, what is one thing I should say? I love this proverb. By wisdom, a house is built. By understanding, it is established. By knowledge, the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. In Hebrew, um, knowledge is general information. That'd be facts. Understanding is prioritizing the facts. And wisdom is how do you, how do you use these facts once you've prioritized them? So here's what I like to say to my students. <clears throat> with this person, at this time, under these circumstances, what is the one thing I should say? Now, I think that's really important. What's the one thing I should say? Not five, but what's the one thing I should say based on this person at this time under these circumstances? What should I say? So imagine this. Imagine you have teenagers. And every time you try to talk about something, it's, it's just heads butting against each other. But this time you have a conversation and, and you don't raise your voices. Now, you still really disagree with each other, and you may even feel disrespected as a parent. But based on the book of Proverbs, what's one thing you should say? Let me offer this. I think the one thing I would say to my teenage son is, hey, I know we disagree with each other, but I, I was so pleased we didn't raise our voices. I felt like this was a good conversation. Now, listen, there's 15 things you want to say. 
But maybe the one thing to say is, I really appreciated the fact that we didn't raise our voices. That might be a really good thing to do with fellow church members when you try to talk about really difficult topics. Pick a relational goal, not necessarily a topic goal. We need to have these hard conversations. They're not going away. I'm the co-director, as I mentioned last week, of the Winsome Conviction Project. Our goal is to reintroduce compassion into our disagreements. Uh, that's a pretty lofty goal, but I think it's a supremely biblical one. So one way that we can uh, structure our conversation is to use these four questions. Now, if you're interested in this topic, then let me suggest just two things. Uh, one, as I mentioned last week, uh, the book that we wrote called Winsome Conviction, Disagreeing Without Dividing the Church, we have copies of those here. I put them at a discount. You don't make any money off this. I make most of my money out of modeling, if you're, just, if you're interested. Uh, I, I don't know why the camera guy's laughing. That was kind of uh, hurtful. Um, so you can get the book. Uh, if you want to get free resources, simply go to winsomeconviction.com. And we have a bunch of resources that you can get. And listen, you can listen to our podcast. I have podcast cards where the books are, the Winsome Conviction podcast. Listen, uh, Jesus was clear when he said, I'll tell you who the sons of God are. The sons of God are the peacemakers. Here, here's the good and bad news about the argument culture today. Things are so bad today, it doesn't take much to be a peacemaker. It doesn't take much to be known as the civil compassionate one. I think this is a huge opportunity for your church and the church at large to show people we are people of conviction. We speak the truth, but we always seek to speak the truth in love. I think eventually that will be the defining feature and will determine whether the church has a table in today's disagreements and ultimately we want to talk about Jesus who's transformed our lives and offers salvation to everybody. So I just pray that we would seriously consider adopting the moniker, we are the peacemakers.